0: If the, the younger children are the, who can't see over people's heads would like to come sit up front, you would be welcome to just sit up here so you can see the, the picture books. You can sit right up here on the floor, okay? Now that we've got our star audience assembled, I'm going to begin. Uh, My name is Sidney Offit, and I'm a member of the the Penn Executive Board, and that's why, and I've written children's books in my more adult years, so that's why I'm acting as the host here this afternoon. Uh, Before we begin this afternoon, I just want to say a, a couple words about PEN, and I'm not going to be at all distracted by other people speaking. While I'm speaking, these are the rules of the afternoon. I'm not going to be at all distracted about people who want to stand up and walk to their favorite adult or their favorite child in the room. That's absolutely allowed. I'm, I'm not going to be distracted by anybody who spills a glass of water or anybody who wants to even suck their thumb. You just make yourself perfectly comfortable. And this is really, I really mean this. this is the only way this is going to work out. So for the, the afternoon, you're on your own. But a few words about Penn. I, I don't what do you think of this name, My Darling Dicky Ducky Bird? Well, I, I just read that yesterday. It was in a letter from Rudyard Kipling to his, to his daughter, Lisa. And uh, he wrote that when she was about 12 years old and he followed it by saying, I know that that must enrage you and I want you to write me a letter and tell me how enraged you are by my nickname. And the reason why I, I contemplated it is because the, uh, the author of that collection, the person who put the collection together said that this was so typical of of Mr. Kipling and the people who write for children who can uh, sort of have an anticipation of the, of the fun and the play with language that is often so engaging to, to uh, young readers, and at the same time are very aware that if you offend them, you've got to be ready to take it. And I think that really is, uh, says something about pen, because pen is, a, is a, the, the, the initials alone don't fully explain it. Penn, the, the letters stand for poets, essayists, and novelists, but it's very flexible. Uh, sometimes we say the P stands for playwrights, and uh, sometimes we say the E stands for editors. The, the major uh, purpose of Penn is to communicate with the writers around the world, to create a community of writers, and also to provide for the freedom of expression. And uh, I, I thought that should be mentioned because it's very thematic of our entertainments this afternoon. There's nothing more characteristic of, of the language of writers and the intention of writers and reaching across the borders which uh, children's book writers, I think, perhaps, do more than any other single genre. Uh, I hope that you are as delighted as I am with our panel, and I hope that you will be as engaged with them as I have been in in my brief conversations with them over the telephone. The way this is gonna work this afternoon, I'm gonna introduce each one of the readers, and the readers will read for something like five to 10 minutes. Uh, After, if they've read, they will, then return to the audience and I'll pop up again and introduce the next reader. I'm, I'm not gonna go into long histories of each one of the readers. They, I'm sure most of you are aware of them. They're, they're all very distinguished writers with, uh, and, and all they're very engaging people as I can testify. I thought it'd be best to just uh, just do it anecdotally. When I made my first phone call, the one who always consen- concerns you was the first person to read and I, I called them, uh, Elizabeth Winthrop you know, thinking this was, this was gonna be my first Contact with a writer for this afternoon, and she made me feel so comfortable uh, that I, I, I want to just thank her for beginning the afternoon for me so graciously. Uh, she was the only girl in a family of six that deserves mention because that's that's probably unique. And she's written 30 books for young readers. Um, among her uh, best-known titles, a book called *The Castle in the Attic*. And with that, uh, I would hope that she will be the one who gets on base as our first reader. Thank you.
1: Hello? All right. Uh, I go out and do a lot of readings at schools. And one of the questions I always get is, how long does it take to write a book? And the great answer I can give the kids is that this book took me an hour to write. Doesn't mean it was easy. (laughs) Uh, And my longest book, which is for adults and is 700 pages, took seven years to write. So I tell the kids it's everything in between, an hour and seven years. Uh, This book is called Shoes. It's illustrated by William Joyce, and it's in poetry. There are shoes to buckle, shoes to tie, shoes too low and shoes too high. Shoes to run in, shoes for sliding, high-top shoes for horseback riding. Shoes too loose and shoes too tight, and shoes to snuggle in at night. Shoes to skate in, shoes to skip in, shoes to turn a double flip in. Shoes for fishing, shoes for wishing, rubber shoes for muddy squishing. Shoes with ribbons, shoes with bows, shoes to skate in when it snows. Shoes for winter, Shoes for fall, shoes for spring, but best of all, they're not too loose and not too tight. They can be worn both day and night. They're right for chasing, right for racing, no time lost in silly lacing. They will not pinch or raise a blister or get passed down to baby sister. Perfect fit, very neat, made especially for the heat your very own skinny-bone, wiggly-toed feet. (laughs) That's shoes. (laughs) Also, getting to read short books, I get to read two. This is called Maggie and the Monster. I have a five-year-old friend named Maggie who comes to see me about once a week. And one day, when she was four years old, she came to see me and. I said to her, how are you? And she said, well, I'm fine, because there are no more monsters in my room. Oh, I said, what happened? She said, well, there were monsters coming in and knocking things off the shelf, making all this noise. So last night I said, everybody out, and they all left. And of course she left and I had a book. (laughs) Every night a monster came into Maggie's room. She crashed into the furniture. She crawled under the table. She sat down on the chair and grumbled to herself. Maggie did not like the monster. Get out of my room, she shouted. But the monster didn't pay any attention. She just pushed her big hairy feet around on the floor and sighed. Maggie turned over and went to sleep. A monster comes into my room at night, Maggie said to her mother. What does she look like, her mother said. She's got big, hairy feet, Maggie said. I wonder why she likes your room so much, said her mother. There's a monster in the upstairs closet too, Maggie said. She sits in the corner behind the brooms. Really, her mother said, I never noticed. That night, Maggie hung a sign on her doorknob. It read, Maggie's Room, Monsters, Keep Out. But the monster didn't pay any attention. She just banged the door open and marched right in. Can't you read, Maggie asked in a loud voice. The monster didn't answer. She snuffled around under the bed and peeked behind the curtains. She knocked some books off the shelf. Watch out, Maggie shouted. You are the clumsiest monster I've ever met. The monster didn't pay any attention. She sat down in the same old chair and grumbled to herself. Maggie stared at her for a long time. Then she turned over and went to sleep. The monster came back last night, Maggie said to her mother. I think she's looking for something. Why don't you ask her, her mother said. That's a good idea, Maggie said. That night, when the monster walked in, Maggie sat up in bed. Hi, monster, she said. The monster shuffled up and stared at Maggie. Hello. What do you want, Maggie asked. I'm looking for my mother, the monster said. Well, why didn't you tell me that before, Maggie said. Come with me. She took the monster by the hand and led her down the hall. The monster in the closet peeked out from behind the brooms. This must be your mother, Maggie said. She's got big hairy feet just like yours. Mama, the monster cried. My baby, said the mother monster. Maggie left them alone together and went back to bed. The end.
0: Thank you very much. Okay. Well, I just, I'll ask the people in the front, do you all have friends? Did you bring a friend? <laughs> well, that's my lead into the next uh, reader. Our next reader is uh, Beatrix Derenye, who I, I spoke to on the telephone and, and had one a very illuminating uh, response. Uh, writing books for very young readers with, where you don't have a lot of words to express yourself requires special gifts. And among those gifts are certainly the gifts of a poet. And I, I knew by the time I hung up the phone that we were going to have a, a poet with us this afternoon. Mr. enye
2: dogs, cats, snakes? Raise your hand. How many? Okay. Is there anyone who doesn't have a pet but wishes you had one? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> is there anyone who's so glad you don't have a pet, a cat or a dog? <laughs> okay. Well, I think... Okay, I think uh, this book is for all of you. Oh, and one more thing I have to ask. I, I need help in counting. When I ask you for help, will you help me? Okay, all right, we're set to go. So many cats. We have sister cats and brother cats, father cats and mother cats. How come we have a dozen cats? Here's how. We had a cat, an only cat. She was a sad and lonely cat. So when a very hungry cat came making a great din, meowing, mewing, scratching at our door, we thought this could be the very cat to make our cat a happy cat, and so we let her in, little knowing we were getting more than we had bargained for. Next morning, we found that now this other cat had turned into a mother cat. So instead of two cats, we had four, no, five. Three little kittens, very much alive, fluffy, and muffy, and smoke, plus Tammy, their mammy, and Pope, Pope, once our only, now no longer lonely, cat. Then a neighbor moving to another city came to chat, she said, and say goodbye. She brought her cat. She said that her cat's name was Kitty, and then she began to cry. The cat was good as gold, she said, but the cat was very old. She said she couldn't take the cat along. And Then about to cry again, she quickly said goodbye again and left, and we said So long. Then we counted our cats to see how many cats we had now. I think I'm going to need a little help here. A very old cat named Kitty. Thank you. Fluffy and Muffy and Smoke. Yeah, why don't you all help? Plus Tammy their mammy. Good. And Pope. Did you count six? Well, so did we. That's not too bad now. Last month, my little brother Matt brought home such an ugly cat, a chewed up ear, one eye blind. He was so dear, we didn't mind his looks. But it would be a pity if he knew that he was ugly, so we named him Pretty. My sister Lee that very day took a bus ride all the way into the city, and that night my sister Lee came home with not one cat, but three. Three frumpy, fleazy, skinny, sleazy city cats. Now of course, they would be getting lots of loving, petting, feeding. That was all those cats were needing to change from skinny, city cats into three plump and pretty cats. Have I named nine cats for 10? I think we'd better count cats again. Now I need all of you to help me. There are my sister's cats, Jenny and Penny and Bloat. Matt's ugly cat named Pretty, Four. a very old cat named Kitty, Five. Fluffy, Muffy, and Smoke, Six, seven, eight. plus Tammy, their mammy, Nine. and Poke. Ten. That ten, you're sure? Well, then there must be more. Two more cats not yet accounted for. And here they are. They followed me home from the grocery store. Dawn. (laughs) Dawn and night. Night, night's black, dawn's white. Do you think, do you think we could count cats again? What, again? Yes, I think we should count cats again, just once more as we did before. And then we're through for good. All right, now I really need your help here. There's dawn. You know, the grown-ups could help. You can count, I bet. All right, let's have it. I'm going to begin over. There's dawn. There's night. There are my sisters' cats, Jenny and Penny and Bloke. Matt's ugly cat named Pretty. A very old cat named Kitty. Fluffy, Muffy, and Smoke. Plus Tammy, their mammy. Mm -hmm. And Poke. Poke, once our only, now no longer lonely cat. Twelve cats. That's enough cats. I adore cats but I don't want more cats. Is that clear? What's that I hear? A strange meow. Don't look now. Outside the window. What a dear little cat. So I think there's soon going to be how many cats, I think, and I have Time left for one very fast poem called This Big Cat. It says something about my big cat, but it says something to any of you, say, past 45. I don't see anyone that old here. Yeah. <laughs> it says something else to you, so. This big cat, when small, a shoebox was his favorite place of all. Now he's old and big and fat, but no one's ever told him that he can no longer fit inside of it, and so he tries. He gets his head and two big paws inside, purrs, closes his eyes, and dreams. It seems to him he hasn't changed at all.
0: The young lady who's expressing herself is right in the tradition of this room of freedom of expression. Uh, also, no, I, I'll bend down, because I'm only going to be a minute. Um, uh, this this room in which we are gathered, I've, I've attended meetings here where there's been, you know, lots of dissent, and uh, this this is this is uh, this is very mild. Uh, I, also, the, an event like this is is a very special occasion for Penn, and i I think I'll just interrupt it right now to pay tribute to, is Alice Lowe here? Alice Lowe? I think we, we should thank her. She, she and, um, and, the next, and the next reader, Stephen Kroll, put this program together. Now I know Stephen Kroll has written more than 30 books, And he's a a distinguished writer of books for young people. But I want to tell you why I will always remember him. He is the first person that I have ever met in my life to whom I've spoken for more than four minutes who went to Harvard University and didn't tell me that. (laughs) (laughs) Stephen?
3: Thank you, Sydney. That's probably one of the nicest compliments I've ever heard. <laughs> well, this uh, story is in a slightly different vein. Uh, did, all, did all of you have a nice visit from the Easter Bunny this past Sunday since it was Easter Sunday? Yes. <laughs> Lots of Easter eggs and things chocolate and otherwise. Well, since it's only a week after Easter, I thought it might be appropriate to read this story about the Easter Bunny, and it's called The Big Bunny and the Magic Show. It's actually a sequel to an earlier book of mine called The Big Bunny and the Easter Eggs, and this is how it goes. It was a few days before Easter. Wilbur, the great big Easter bunny, had finished his work early. He'd woven new wicker baskets and dyed all the Easter eggs. He'd painted designs on the eggs and made oodles of jelly beans and chocolate candy. All he had to do now was deliver everything. Last year, Wilbur had gotten sick on Easter Eve. He'd almost missed his deliveries. This year, he was fine, but grumpy. And when he woke up and looked out on those big piles of Easter goodies, he said, humph, I'm tired of being the Easter bunny. Here's Wilbur looking fine, but grumpy. He pulled on his bathrobe and thumped into the kitchen to have breakfast. There wasn't much in the fridge. He had two big carrots and a cup of tea. As he was finishing, he picked up the Daily Bunny Bulletin. There, on page two, was an ad. Magician needs bunny for tricks and travel. Interviews, Town Square, today. The ad was signed, Morgan the Magician. Just then there was a knock on Wilbur's door. In tumbled his four bunny friends. We came to see if you were ready for Easter, said Hector and Francine. We're sure glad you're not sick this year, said Charles and Henrietta. Have you seen this ad, asked Wilbur. The four bunnies stared at the newspaper. I've decided to get a new job, said Wilbur. But Easter is only a few days away, cried Hector. You can't look for another job now, said Charles. Oh, yes, I can, said Wilbur. And he dashed out the door. The bunnies looked at one another. We've got to stop him, said Henrietta. They all rushed after Wilbur. Here is Wilbur racing out the door. The bunny is looking after him. When they reached the town square, hundreds of bunnies were lined up outside an old truck. Morgan's magic show was painted on the side in bright letters. Wilbur was nowhere to be seen. The four bunnies raced up to the truck and peered through the side window. Morgan the magician was twirling the ends of his mustache. He was talking to Wilbur. Why do you want this job, he asked. I'm sick of what I'm doing now, said Wilbur. What's that, asked Morgan. I'm the Easter Bunny, Morgan burst out laughing. But everyone knows you're not supposed to see the Easter Bunny. That's one of the reasons I want to quit. I'm tired of hiding, said Wilbur. Morgan's eyes sparkled like diamonds. I think you'll make a fine assistant, he said. You're hired. Here's Morgan twirling the ends of his mustache and interviewing Wilbur for his job. The four bunnies clapped their paws to their heads. Oh, no, said Hector. Who's going to deliver the eggs, wailed Francine. Wilbur knows we're too small to carry all of them, said Charles. We've got to make him change his mind, said Henrietta. Morgan the magician hung a a sign outside the truck. Bunny hired, it said. Then he jumped behind the wheel and drove off in a cloud of dust. The bunnies choked and sneezed. Quick, said Hector, after them. The four bunnies ran and got their bicycle built for four. They puddled, They pedaled off down the road after the truck. They pedaled and peddled. I've got an idea for getting Wilbur back, said Henrietta. She quickly told it to the three other bunnies. Great, said Hector, I think Wilbur will quit after this, said Francine. It's worth a try, said Charles. There's a theater in the next town, said Francine. I bet Wilbur and Morgan will be there, said Charles. Here are the four bunnies on their bicycle built for four. Pedaling and pedaling. When the bunnies arrived in the next town, they saw Morgan's truck parked in front of the theater. The magic show was just about to begin. The bunnies sneaked into the theater through the back door. Morgan the magician was getting ready to go on stage. Wilbur stood beside him, wearing a long ruffled cape and a wig. Wilbur looks ridiculous, said Francine. "Shh," said Hector, he might hear you. The curtain went up, the audience clapped, Morgan and Wilbur strutted into the spotlight on the stage. For my first trick, said Morgan, I will remove eight knots from a piece of rope in one motion. Wilbur handed him the rope. Morgan flipped an end into the air, and the knots disappeared. Here is Wilbur holding that piece of rope with all the knots in it. The audience clapped. Morgan and Wilbur stepped forward and bowed. At that instant, Charles and Francine let the curtain drop. It fell on Morgan and Wilbur, burying them in folds of cloth. Help, help, shouted Morgan, as the audience booed and hollered. You've jinxed my act, you dumb bunny. No, I didn't, protested Wilbur. It was an accident. We'll see about that, said Morgan, struggling to get free of the curtain. The bunnies ran outside and hid behind a bush. I have another idea, said Henrietta. The others crowded close to hear. The next afternoon, the four bunnies sneaked into the theater once again. Quietly, they climbed to the platforms and ropes above the stage. They waited for the show to begin. The curtain went up. Morgan and Wilbur pranced on stage, dressed in robes and turbans. I am Morgan the Magnificent, said Morgan. He pulled scarves out of his sleeves. He made a quarter disappear. And now, he said, I will saw my assistant in half. Here is Morgan, preparing to saw Wilbur in half. Morgan wheeled a box onto the stage. Wilbur's knees shook as he climbed in. As Morgan lifted the saw, Wilbur closed his eyes. The four bunnies formed a ladder, each one holding the other's legs. Francine was at the bottom. She grabbed Morgan's turban off his head. The audience laughed and booed Morgan's face grew as red as a radish. He reached for his turban, and it wasn't there. He got so mad, he smacked the box. The sides fell down, and there was Wilbur scrunched into one end. The audience laughed and booed louder. Quickly, Morgan started to wheel Wilbur off the stage. By this time, the bunnies were back in their hiding place they lowered a big hook. It caught Morgan by the pants. The pants ripped and the audience roared. Here is Morgan being caught by the seat of his pants on that hook. Morgan struggled to hide his underwear with his robe. He pushed Wilbur the rest of the way off stage. A moment later, He wheeled back a table with a huge top hat on it. And now, he yelled desperately, for my best trick, I will pull a very large rabbit out of a very large hat. Morgan waved his wand and said, abracadabra. Suddenly, eight furry paws yanked the cloth off the table. There lay Wilbur. Trembling underneath. The audience laughed and booed and booed. They threw rotten eggs and tomatoes. Wilbur, you've brought me nothing but trouble, said Morgan. You're fired. Here is Morgan firing Wilbur after they've both been pelted with those rotten eggs and tomatoes. Shaking and quaking, Wilbur ran out of the theater. He ran and ran and ran and ran. He ran so far, so fast, he was home before he knew it. The piles of Easter eggs and jelly beans and chocolate candy had never looked so wonderful. By the time Hector, Francine, Charles and Henrietta reached Wilbur's house. He was relaxing in his favorite chair and adding the final touches to a few more Easter eggs. We're sorry we ruined your magic act, said Hector. We had to bring you back, said Francine. Well, you certainly messed things up, said Wilbur. He finished painting the last egg and put it in a basket. But you know something, he added? I'm really glad to be home. Hooray, shouted the four bunnies. They hugged Wilbur. He smiled. I'm looking forward to delivering these eggs, he said. And on Easter morning, before the sun rose, that's exactly what he did. Thank you.
0: Well, uh, I, w- I was going to ask you a question. Do you like to laugh? Because I, I, I assume that um, most of the people who write for y- young readers really like to laugh. And when I was uh, checking on the people for this panel, I knew there was one one of the, the participants who was certainly going to make me smile because she made me smile on the phone and when I met her. I could feel her warmth and her good humor. She wrote a book which. I can tell you the story, The Adventures of Alababa Bernstein. If you can say that with a straight face, then Joanna Hurwitz is in trouble, but I have a hunch she has an answer to that. Ms. Hurwitz?
4: You have to laugh a little bit in this book because the book I'm going to read from is called Class Clown. And it's about a boy who always fools around in class to make everybody laugh, except not his teacher. And I have to tell you that there's a girl in the class who's exactly the opposite. She's the teacher's pet. And her name is Cricket. And everything she does is so perfect that it just bugs Lucas Cott, who's the class clown. One Thursday in November, Cricket Kaufman came rushing into the classroom, all excited. My mother had our baby, she announced very proudly to everyone. That's wonderful, said Mrs. Hockaday, the teacher. Is it a girl or a boy? It's a girl baby, said Cricket, and her name is Monica. My father says she looks just like me. How come they didn't name her after a bug like you, asked Lucas. There were lots of names he could think of. Mosquito Kaufman, Ladybug Kaufman, Cockroach Kaufman. <laughs> Mrs. Hockaday ignored Lucas's cock- comment, but Cricket surprised him by turning angrily and saying, Oh, yeah, well, how come your parents didn't name you Mucus to go with the names of your brothers, Marcus, Marius, and Mucus? Mucus, Julio shouted, Mucus cot. Julio, stop that at once. You too, Lucas. And I'm surprised at you, Cricket. You mustn't let Lucas's teasing make you so upset. If your sister grows up to be like you, it will be a pleasure to have her in my class someday. But calling out is not proper behavior from anyone. She looked at Lucas and Julio sternly. Is that understood? Lucas remembered that he had promised his mother he wasn't going to call out in class, but once again, he seemed to have forgotten. It seemed as if the words were always flying out of his mouth before he could even remember to sit still. So now, even though he was furious at what Cricket had said, he kept quiet. He waited until they were walking out of class at the end of the day to tell her something he bet she didn't know. My name is Roman, he said, and Marcus and Marius have Roman names, too. That's because my grandparents came from Italy, and in the olden days, Rome was the most important place in the world. Well, that doesn't make you so important now, said Cricket. You think you are so special because you have twins at your house. I bet my sister is going to be smarter than your brothers, and she's prettier, too. Don't you say anything against my brothers. They're better than your baby sister any day, said Lucas angrily. You haven't even seen my sister, said Cricket, sticking her tongue out at Lucas. You'll see, said Lucas knowingly. Babies aren't all that great. They make a lot of noise, and they smell, too. And they take up a lot of your parents' time. At least Marcus and Marius are two years old. They can learn things from me. If you are teaching them to be like you, then they're going to get in trouble all the time, just like you. Oh yeah, yeah. You couldn't keep quiet if your life depended on it, Cricket said to Lucas. Your mouth is open all day long. I'm surprised you don't wake yourself up talking in your sleep. Listen, said Lucas. Mouths are meant for talking and eating and screaming. You don't eat all day and you shouldn't talk all day either, said Cricket. Poor Mrs. Hockaday has to listen to you talking constantly. I don't talk that much, said Lucas defending himself. And besides, if I wanted to, I could stop talking. It's just that I have a lot to say. I bet you couldn't keep quiet for more than two seconds. Wanna bet? Sure. What do you want to bet, asked Lucas. My grandma gave me a dollar last night because I was such a big girl with my new baby sister. I'll bet you that dollar that you couldn't go through a day at school without saying a single word. You're on, said Lucas. Tomorrow my lips will be sealed. Okay, but if you talk at all, if you say one single word in school tomorrow, then you have to give me a dollar warned Cricket. No sweat said Lucas. He didn't have a dollar to pay her but he had no intention of losing the bet. It would be an easy way to earn a dollar and he would show Cricket Kaufman that she didn't know everything. He could be quiet if he wanted to he just had never wanted to before and after he won the bet he would talk twice as much the next day to really get her annoyed. It was a great plan. The next morning Lucas left home and started off to school. He wasn't sure at which point the bet began. Could he speak in the schoolyard? What about during recess and lunchtime? No matter. He wouldn't say a word all day. There was no way he was going to lose this bet. Hi, Lucas, Cricket called out as she saw him approaching. Lucas nodded to her, but he did not say anything. Don't forget, said Cricket, one word and you owe me a dollar. Lucas nodded his head in agreement and went into the classroom. There was no sense in standing around outside if he couldn't speak to anyone. After a few minutes, the bell rang and all the students filed into the classroom. Mrs. Hockaday came in and sat down at her desk. At the beginning of the school year, she had called the attendance each morning, but now that she knew all her students, she merely looked around the room and she could spot who was absent. 100% attendance, she said looking up and down the rows. That's a fine way to end the week. Lucas was just about to call out that the best way to end the week was to go home when he remembered that he was not going to speak. He pressed his lips together and took out his arithmetic workbook. He paid close attention to everything that Mrs. Hockaday wrote on the chalkboard, and he shook his head when Julio poked him to say something. What's the matter? whispered Julio, noticing the way Lucas was keeping his lips pressed together. You feel like throwing up or something? Lucas shook his head and kept writing in his workbook. He wanted to tell Uyo that school always made him feel sick, but he knew he couldn't even whisper without Cricket hearing him. He looked in her direction and saw that she was watching him closely. Cricket, why aren't you doing your problems? Mrs. Hockaday called out. I'm finished already, Cricket replied proudly. We'll go over them again, said the teacher. We don't want any careless errors. Cricket pretended to go over her arithmetic but Lucas could see she was still watching him. This was going to be a long day. During social studies, Mrs. Hockaday asked the class which explorer discovered the Pacific Ocean. Lucas knew the answer, but he did not raise his hand. He listened as the students tried to guess the answer. Columbus, said Julio. Marco Polo, said Sarah Jane. Cricket was waving her hand frantically. I know, I know, she called out. Of course, you know Cricket, said Mrs. Hockaday, smiling at her star student. But I want some of the other students to try and remember. We talked about this man yesterday. Here is a clue. His name starts with a B. No one seemed to know the answer except Cricket and Lucas. But Lucas couldn't say it without losing the bet, and Mrs. Hockaday didn't want to call on Cricket. She had already answered the last five questions that the teacher had asked. Open your books to page 72, Mrs. Hockaday instructed the class. Everyone did. Now Lucas, please start reading from the top of the page. You will find the answer to the question there. Lucas froze. He looked over at Cricket. Did reading count as speaking? It had been stupid of him not to make the rules for this bet clear before he agreed to it. Cricket was grinning from ear to ear. It was obvious to Lucas that if she thought he would have to pay her a dollar if he read in class. Lucas sat staring at page 72, but he did not begin reading. Lucas, said Mrs. Hockaday, we're all waiting. Lucas thought fast. He began to cough. Then he doubled up and coughed into his hands. You had better get yourself a drink of water, Mrs. Hockaday said. Ulio, would you read from the top of page 72? Lucas dashed out into the hall. He was lucky to have gotten out of that situation. He hoped he could keep it up through the rest of the day. He took a long, slow drink of water at the fountain and went back to the classroom. So now we all know who discovered the Pacific Ocean, Mrs. Hockaday was saying as he entered the room. Lucas, do you know, she asked. Lucas stopped midway to his seat. He nodded his head and smiled at the teacher. Who was it, asked Mrs. Hockaday. Lucas was about to double up in a second coughing fit. However, he suddenly realized he had another alternative. He walked to the front of the room and picked up a piece of chalk. B-A-L-B-O-A, he wrote on the chalkboard in huge letters. Well, he got out of it that time. If you want to find out if he wins the bet, then you're going to have to read the
0: book. That's what you call a cliffhanger. <laughs> um, I want one other writing lesson. I want to introduce the next speaker with a writing lesson. Uh, I guess we. if you have conceits? We all have conceits. M- my conceit has always been that uh, with my family and my friends, I always say I always remember things from our, you know, with great detail in my childhood. The other day, I was speaking to our next reader this afternoon, a Judy Bloom, and I said, "Do you remember when we met?" And uh, Judy said, "Yes, she did remember." And she said it was a committee for a writers' organization and. She remembered Toni Morrison, and she and I had been on the committee, and I said, I'm surprised you remember that. And she said, I remember most everything. And I knew, when she said that, that she does. And it isn't just that she remembers, because I've read her books and I know, but she knows what to remember. She listens, and she knows what to hear and select from what she's heard and from what she sees. And that's what's made her such a very popular writer. To readers, Judy Boone. Thank
5: you, Sydney. I don't remember everything that's not true. Um, I'm going to read to you today from a new book. It's being published in the fall. It's a little bit older. I, I, I hope you younger guys will like it. It's about three friends in seventh grade, and it's called Just As Long As We're Together. And this is chapter three, it's called Allison. And um, the girl who's telling the story is called Stephanie. And this is on the day that she meets Allison. It's about three friends in seventh grade. And they live in Connecticut in something that's called cluster housing. And probably you city kids don't know what that is, but it's a lot of houses together on a big piece of land. And they share a pond, and they share the woods. Anyway, here's Allison. The day before school started was hot and still. I was hanging out by the pond, dipping my feet into the water. Should I stand up so you can all see me? Should I do that? Maybe I'm better off standing up. Maybe that's better. Um, The day before school started was hot and still. I was hanging out by the pond, dipping my feet into the water. And that's when I first saw the girl. She was crouching by the tree with the big hole in it. I figured she was trying to get a look at the raccoon family that lives inside. I've never seen them myself, but my brother Bruce has. I shook the water off my feet, put on my sandals, and walked over to her. She looked about Bruce's age, which is ten. Her red and white striped t-shirt came down to her knees. Probably it belonged to her father. Her hair was long. She hadn't brushed it that day. I could tell by her crooked part and the tangles at the end. I guess she wasn't worried about stepping on a bee like me, because she was walking around barefoot. Uh, She had a small dog with her, the kind that has fur hanging into its eyes. And as soon as I came close, the dog started to bark. Be quiet, Maisie, the girl said. Then she turned to me. Hi, I'm Allison. We just moved in. You probably didn't notice, because we didn't have a moving van. We're renting number 25. Oh, I said, I'm Stephanie. I live here, too. Number nine, Allison stood up and brushed off her hands. Then she reached under the T-shirt into the pocket of her shorts, and she pulled out a card. I was really surprised because I got one just like it in the mail last week. On the front, it said, looking forward. And inside, it said, to meeting you next Thursday. It was signed Natalie Remo, 7th grade homeroom teacher, room 203. What do you know about Mrs. Remo, Allison asked, because that's who I've got for homeroom. I guess she could tell I was surprised. She said, you probably thought I was younger. Everybody does, because I'm so small. But I'm going to be 13 in April. I didn't tell her. I thought she was Bruce's age. Instead, I said, I'll be 13 in February. I didn't mention the date either. February 2nd, Groundhog Day. I'm in Mrs. Rima's homeroom too. She sent me the same card. Oh, Allison said. I thought she sent it to me because I'm new. I'm from Los Angeles. Oh, my father's there now on business, I told her. Actually, he's been there since the beginning of August. I don't know how long he's going to be away this time. Once he had to go to Japan for six weeks. Maisie, the dog, barked. Allison kneeled next to her. What'd you say, Maisie? she asked, pressing her ear right up to to Maisie's mouth. Maisie made a couple of sounds, and Allison nodded. Then she giggled. Oh, come on, Maisie, she said, as if she were talking to her dog. Then she looked up at me. Maisie is such a character. She told me to tell you, She's glad we're in the same homeroom because she was worried that I wouldn't know anyone in the new school. Your dog told you that? Yes, Allison said, but look, I'd really appreciate it if you didn't say anything about it. Once people find out your dog can talk, forget it. In L.A., there were always reporters and photographers following us around. You know, we're trying to avoid the same kind of publicity here. You mean, I said, that your dog actually talks, like Mr. Ed, that talking horse who used to be on TV?" That horse didn't really talk, Allison said, as if I didn't know. Well, I said, scratching the mosquito bite on my leg, um, exactly how does Maisie talk? I mean, does she talk in human words or what? Of course she talks in words, Allison said. But she doesn't speak perfect English because English isn't her first language. (laughs) And it's really hard for a dog to learn another language. What's her first language, I asked? French. Oh, I said, French. Now this was getting really good. Uh, I'm taking introduction to French this year, I told her. I'm taking introduction to Spanish, Alison said. I already speak French. I lived outside of Paris until I was six. I thought you were Chinese or something, I said. I'm Vietnamese, Allison said. I'm adopted. My mother's American, but she was married to Pierre Monceau, and um, he's French. Uh, Mom came to the States after they got divorced, and that's when she met Leon. He's my stepfather. I absolutely love to hear the details of other people's lives. So I sat down beside Allison, hoping she would tell me more. My brother, Bruce, says I'm nosy, but that's not true. I've discovered, though, that you can't ask too many questions when you first meet people or they'll get the wrong idea. They may not understand that you're just curious and accuse you of butting into their private business instead. Allison fiddled with a twig, running it across Maisie's back. I didn't ask her any of the questions that were forming in my mind. Instead, I said, would your dog talk to me? Maybe, if she's in the mood. (laughs) I cleared my throat. throat) Hi, Maisie, I said, as if I were talking to a little kid. I am your new neighbor, Stephanie Hirsch. Maisie cocked her head at me, as if she was actually listening. Her tiny bottom teeth stuck out, just the opposite of mine. My top teeth stick out. Um, That is, they did before I got my braces. The orthodontist says I have an overbite, which would mean that Maisie has an underbite. (laughs) What kind of dog are you, I asked, patting her back. Her fur felt sticky, as if she'd been rolling in syrup. She's a mixture, Allison said. We don't know anything about her parents, so we don't know if they could talk or not. Probably not, because only one in 17 million dogs can talk. (laughs) One in 17 million? Yes, that's what the vet told us. It's extremely rare. Maisie is probably the only talking dog in all of Connecticut. Well, I said, I can't wait for Rachel to meet Maisie. Who's Rachel? Allison asked. She's my best friend. Oh, you have a best friend. She lives here, too, number 16, and she is really smart. She's never had less than an A in school. I stood up. I have to go home now. But I'll see you tomorrow. The junior high bus stops in front of the lodge. That's the building down by the road. It's supposed to come at 10 to 8. I know, Allison said. I got a notice in the mail. She stood up, too. So do you wear jeans or skirts to school here? Either, I said. What about shoes? I looked at her bare feet. Yes, I said, you have to wear them. <laughs> I mean, what kind of shoes? Running shoes, sandals, or what? Most of the kids here wear topsiders. Ugh, topsiders are so preppy, Allison said. You don't have to wear them, I told her. You can wear whatever you want. Good, Allison said, I will.
0: if you're having as much fun as I'm having, you're having a good time, <laughs> OK. Uh, you know, uh, writers often have a number of jobs that finally leads them into the pen and pencil or the typewriter. Our, our next reader, Myron Lavoie, was in, in among his, in his checkered past, uh, an engineer, which I think just lends itself perfectly to constructing stories. And among, among his books that are very well known are A Shadow Like a Leopard, The Picture of Adam, and Alan and Naomi, which is a which is a World War story of a World child who leaves escapes from World War II and has a confrontation with somebody in, in contemporary America. They're all very popular books, and I'm sure he's going to have an enchanting reading for us next.
6: Hi. I'm going to read you a, a short story, complete story, and it takes ba- place some years ago, and it's about a girl whose father owns a fish store. I don't know if, how many of you have been in a store that sells only fish, fish stores, sawdust on the, on the floor and fish all over. Well, this girl has a kind of a problem, This is from a book called The Witch of 4th Street. It's seven short stories in it, and I'm going to tell you about Noreen Callahan. And I'm going to put my... It's called The Fish Angel. The Fish Angel. Noreen Callahan was convinced that her father's fish store on 2nd Avenue was without a doubt the ugliest fish store on the east side of New York. The sawdust on the floor was always slimy with fish drippings. The fish were piled in random heaps on the ice. The paint on the walls was peeling off in layers. Even the cat sleeping in the window was filthy. Mr. Callahan, her father's apron was always dirty and he wore an old battered hat that was in worse shape than the cat if such a thing were possible. Often fish heads would drop on the floor right under the customer's feet and Mr. Callahan wouldn't bother to sweep them up. And as time passed, most of his customers went somewhere else for their fish. Well, see, Mr. Callahan had never really wanted to sell fish in a fish store. He had wanted to be an actor on the stage to do great, heroic, marvelous things. He tried, but he was unsuccessful, and he had to come back to work in his father's fish store, the store which now was his fish store. That would have been Noreen's grandfather. But Noreen's father took no pride in owning or running the store, for what beauty was possible? What marvelous heroic things could be done in a fish store? Noreen's mother helped in the store most of the week, But Saturday was Noreen's day to help while her mother cleaned the house to help in the store. And to Noreen, it was the worst day of the week. She was ashamed to be seen in the store by any of her friends and classmates, ashamed of the smells, ashamed of the fish heads and the fish tails, ashamed of the scruffy cat and of her father's dirty apron. To Noreen, this fish store seemed a scar across her face a scar she'd been born with. And like a scar, Noreen carried the fish store with her everywhere, even into the schoolroom. Fish girl, fish girl, dirty fish girl, some of the girls would call her. And when they did, Noreen wished she could run into the dark closed closet at the back of the room and cry. And once or twice she did. But pleasant things also happened for Noreen. A few weeks before Christmas, Noreen was chosen to play an angel in the church pageant, an angel who would float high, high up on a platform above everyone's head. And best of all, she would get to wear a beautiful, beautiful angel's gown, as beautiful as her mother could make it. Well, Mrs. Callahan worked on the angel's gown every night sewing on silver spangles, the little glittery things that would shine a thousand different ways in the light. And to go with this gown, her mother made a sparkling crown, a tiara, out of cloth, cardboard, gold paint, and little bits of clear glass. And on the day of the pageant, Noreen shone almost like a real angel, and she felt so happy and light, well, that just with a little effort, she might have flown like a real angel too and the pageant went off very well, and after the pageant, Noreen's mother and father had a little party for her in their living room. Mr. Callahan borrowed a camera to take pictures of Noreen in her angel's gown. Remember, he's the owner of the fish store, but he loves his daughter. To last me at least a year of looking, he said, for though Mr. Callahan hated his fish store, He loved Noreen with a gigantic love. He often told Noreen that some children were the apple of their father's eye, but she was not only the apple of his eye, but the peach, pear, plum, and apricot too. And Noreen would ask, and strawberry? Yes, but God, her father would say, you're the fruit salad of my eye. That's what you are, smothered in whipped cream. And so he took picture after picture after picture with the big old camera that slid in and out on a wooden frame. And Noreen had a wonderful time posing with her friend Kathy, who had also been an angel in the pageant. But the party came to an end, as all parties must. And it was time to take off the angel's gown and the crown and become just Noreen Callahan again. Noreen felt so heavy after so much lightness and shining. Into the the drawer of her room, neatly folded, went the heavenly angel. Maybe next year, her mother said, we'll have it out again. That night Noreen dreamed that she was dancing at a wonderful ball in her dress of silver and her crown of gold. Round and round the ballroom she went as silver spangles fluttered down like snow, turning everything into a beautiful fairy's web of light. And then she was up on her toes in a graceful pirouette. Everyone watched. Everyone applauded. But this was just a dream. As she whirled, her dress opened out like a great white flower around her, Suddenly she felt herself sliding and skidding on the dance floor. She looked down and there were silver spangles but they had changed into fish scales. The floor was covered with fish heads and fish tails and slimy, slimy, slippery sawdust and everyone was calling fish girl, fish girl, fish girl. Noreen awoke, not knowing quite where she was for a moment. Then she turned over in the bed and cried and cried till she finally fell asleep again. The next week passed and a lot of rain and snow that instantly turned into slush, and every day when she came home from school, Noreen looked at that dress lying in the drawer in her room. Wear me, wear me, the dress seemed to be saying to her. But Noreen just sighed and shut the drawer, only to open it and look again an hour later. And then, all too soon, it was Saturday, the day that Noreen hated fish store day, the day she had to help in the fish store, how she wished she could just turn into a real angel and fly away and escape. Suddenly Noreen sat down on her bed. Oh boy, she knew knew it and it was decided before she could actually think. That angel gown, how could anyone wait a year to have it out again, the way her mother said she would wear it now, right now in her father's store and then people would know that she had nothing to do with that dirty apron and that filthy floor. And Maybe those children would stop calling her fish girl. She would be a fish angel now. Mrs. Callahan saw the gown under Noreen's coat as Noreen was about to leave the house to go to the store. Her mother rarely scolded Noreen, but this was too much. It was completely crazy. That gown would be ruined. Her father would be very, very angry. Everyone would laugh at her. Everyone would think she was crazy. But Mrs. Callahan saw that nothing, absolutely nothing, could stop Noreen. So she finally gave in, but not before warning Noreen that next year she would have to make her own dress. An angel's gown and a fish store was almost a sin. When Noreen arrived at the fish store and took off her coat, Mr. Callahan was busy filleting a flounder, cutting the bones out of the flounder. But when he saw Noreen, he gasped and he cut himself with the knife. Ah, he called out and it was a cry of surprise at the gown and anger at Noreen and pain from the cut all at the same time. He nursed his finger Not knowing what to say to to Noreen in front of all these customers. What a lovely gown, said one of the women in the, uh, one of the customers. What happened, asked another. Is this some special occasion? It's his daughter, whispered a third. That's his daughter. Isn't she gorgeous? And Mr. Callahan simply couldn't be angry anymore as the customers complimented him on how absolutely beautiful his daughter looked. He felt something he hadn't felt for a very, very long time. He felt a flush of pride. Maybe marvelous things, even heroic things, could be done in a fish store. Mr. Callahan watched Noreen as she weighed and wrapped the fish very, very carefully so as not to get a single spot on her dress. Wherever she moved, his eyes followed as you follow the light of a candle in a dark passage. And toward the end of the day, Mr. Callahan took off his filthy apron and his battered hat, and he went to the little room in the back of the store and returned wearing a clean, white apron. Christmas came and passed, and New Year's, and Noreen wore her gown and her tiara, her crown, every Saturday, and more and more customers came to see the girl in the angel gown. Mr. Callahan put down fresh sawdust twice a day and laid the fish out neatly in rows and washed and cleaned the floors and window. He even cleaned the cat. And one night in January, he painted the walls white as chalk and his business began to prosper. And the children who had called Noreen fish girl called her nothing at all for a while but they finally found something which they seemed to think was even worse. Fish angel, they called her, fish angel. But Noreen just smiled when she heard them, for she had chosen that very name for herself, a secret name, many weeks before. And Saturday soon became Noreen's favorite day of the week, for that was the day she could work side by side with her father in what was, without a doubt, the neatest, cleanest fish store on the east side of New York.
0: Well, uh, since, uh, since Alice followed the white rabbit down the uh, rabbit hole, rabbits have been playing a, a very prominent role in children's literature. I guess the, the fans of Beatrix Potter would probably say that that was the all-time rabbit. But uh, we have a very serious contender A binocula is a vampire rabbit and the title of James Howe's book and Mr. Howe will be our next reader this afternoon.
7: Mr. Howe. Thank you. Well I'm not going to read about binicula today though I'm going to read about some of his friends. Um, For those of you who know my books about binicula you know that there is a dog named Harold and a cat named Chester, and a puppy named Howie. And these are the three main characters in the book that I'm going to read today. Uh, This is a picture book without pictures. In fact, it's a book without a title because I just wrote it. I wrote it on a day very much like today. I sat down and I didn't know what I was going to write. I knew I wanted to write a picture book with my old friends, Harold and Chester and Howie, but I didn't know what to write about. And all of a sudden, I got spring fever, and I tried something new for me. Um, and I just want to explain a couple of things so that you'll, you'll know where we are when we start. One is that Harold and Chester and Howie are the pets in the Monroe family. And Howie, who came into my stories along the way, for some reason has a fixation on Chester, a uh, father fixation, and insists on calling him Pop, which drives Chester up the wall since he's a cat. Uh, And he refers to Harold as Uncle Harold. One sunny day in the month of May, Chester rolled over and I heard him say, It's time to get up. It's time to get out. Spring has sprung. Wake up, you lout. I tried to ignore him and go back to sleep, but he kept shouting, Don't count your sheep. Count the daisies up on the hill and then count the days till it's winter again. The next thing I knew, Howie was yipping. Pop's right, Uncle Harold, he said, tripping on a baseball bat left out in the yard. If you get up now, it won't be so hard. So I stretched, and I stretched, and I let out a yawn, and then I sneezed from the freshly cut lawn, and I said, what now, now that I'm awake? Explore, how he shouted, let's go down to the lake. What about the Monroes, I asked, won't they worry? They left this morning, said Chester, off in a hurry, so we don't have to whimper or beg or say, please, we can do what we want, we're as free as the breeze. Down the street we trotted like the three musketeers, first Chester, then Howie, then me in the rear, trying to hearken to Spring's gentle call, which wasn't easy with the traffic and all. At the corner, while waiting for the light to turn red, I looked for signs of Spring, but what I saw instead were legs rushing here and legs rushing there, and faces all wrinkled and scrunched up with care. Quick, Chester ordered. Cars screeched to a halt. We scrambled across as if under assault. Then with vrooms and with fumes, the cars roared into gear. You know how he said, It isn't safe here. Where are they going? Chester asked with alarm. Are they running away? Are they fleeing from harm? Speaking of fleas, I felt one at my collar, but before I could scratch it, I heard someone holler, out of the way, watch where you're going. A kid on a skateboard as fast as a Boeing came whizzing right at us and made us all leap, and when we came down, we were three in a heap. Chester on the bottom, me on the top, Howie in the middle yelling, what fun, Pop! Chester snorted, this isn't fun at all. By the time you two get off me, I'll be glad if I can crawl. Running might be smarter, I remarked, and this is why. A man was coming toward us, and that wasn't kindness in his eye. Get off, he shouted angrily. You've messed up my petunias. You've ruined my wife's roses, not to mention those of Junior's. We ran as fast as we could run until we ran no more, and then we stopped to catch our breaths outside a grocery store. I'm starved, how he said, and so in truth was I. Let's beg for food to eat from the people passing by. Chester informed us that cats don't beg. That gave us quite a laugh. We took positions by the door and kept an eye out for the staff. But no one even noticed us. No one stopped at all, except a boy and a couple of girls. And they were told not to stall. Come along, Jessica. You'll be late for dance. Don't touch them, Rudy. You'll get hair on your pants. Hurry up, Heather. You have tennis at 3. No one had time, not for Chester, not for Howie, and not for me. The grumble in my stomach was growing louder by the minute it would roar like thunder soon if there wasn't something in it. Let's go, Howie said at last, looking quite disgusted. If we hang around much longer, our metal will go rusted. Chester wanted to go home. Howie to the lake. I was all for anywhere that offered eggs and steak, or chocolate bars or cabbage soup or anything you choose, and then a drink of water and a place to have a snooze. Left, Chester said. I said we'd go right. Howie told us straight ahead and bounded out of sight. By the time that we caught up with him, we found him on the side of a six-lane highway. Now what, I cried. Look how he shouted, and he began to bark. Not 30 feet away was the entrance to the park, and half a mile inside, if it wasn't a mistake, we'd find just what Howie hoped for, the lake. Inside the park, it was quiet as a tomb. Who goes there, cried an owl, or maybe it was whom. We hardly dared to breathe. We didn't say a word. Where were all the people? Had something strange occurred? There's a mystery here, said Chester, as we stopped to smell the air. There are lilacs and there are tulips, but no one seems to care. They just hurry, hurry, hurry to do the same old thing and never even notice that winter's turn to spring. I was ready to agree when I spotted Howie's nose. It was twitching all about, and it wasn't from a rose. It wasn't from a lilac or a yellow-black-eyed sioux. It was something even better, a barbecue. There were some people in the park, and they had food to eat. We zoomed off to find them on locomotive feet. When we spied them at the water's edge, you can imagine our surprise. For there, among the hot dogs and the pickles and the pies, the hamburger buns with sesame seeds, the soda pop, the chips, were four familiar faces with ketchup on their lips. The animals, cried Toby. I knew we should have brought them. And right away, he slipped me food, just as I had taught him. After we ate, we played for hours, as long as there was light, with Pete and his new soccer ball and the Monroe's and their new kite. We wrestled with Toby on the grass and played tag with a gaggle of geese. Then Mr. Monroe read us a story, and we grew quiet, and were at peace. It wasn't until much later, when the day was growing dark, we heard Mrs. Monroe say, it's a shame about the park. Hardly anybody uses it. They've forgotten what it's for. But we know, don't we? How he said to me, Right, it's to explore. So if it's springtime where you are, or even if it's not, go find a park you can explore, just an empty lot. Try something different that you've never, ever done. Fly a kite. Stay up all night and watch the rising of the sun. For spring is the time to try something new. I've written this piece of doggerel. What will you do? (laughs) Thank you.
0: Well, you know, I I was was just thinking that there was a line of F. Scott Fitzgerald that start with an individual and you create a type and start with a type and you have nothing. And I think that's uh, also true of the generalities that people apply to anything that's a it has to do with an aesthetic. Well, one of the things that uh, uh, writing for young readers is always a riddle. And I, I don't know how, we, uh, and, and there's any absolute definition. The closest I've ever heard is that people who, who write children's books who, who seem to be most successful really are writing for themselves, really writing a book at the level of their own fantasy or their own reality. Uh, when, when I first started writing children's books, an editor said to me there was a, a writer whose work I must read. And that writer is Paula Danziger. So when I, called her to speak to her about the program today. I was wondering how to introduce her and she just said, here's Paula, just that would do it. And that's all I will say. Here's Paula and I'm sorry my editor isn't here to admire you too.
8: (laughs) I uh, couldn't decide what I was going to read so I brought three things and I'm not going to use them all. But uh, my new book, that's coming out in the fall. I got sick of people saying, oh, you live in New York City. It's really disgusting. Have you ever been mugged? One kid in Arizona asked if I'd ever mugged anybody. (laughs) But this is my answer to them. It's called Remember Me to Harold Square. And um, I'm not going to read from it. But I was going to, but the reason I brought it up is later those of you who haven't seen a manuscript with editor's writing, it's there. So I'm going to read instead from the first book and the latest published book. First book is The Cat Ate My Gym suit. I hate my father. I hate school. I hate being fat. I hate the principal because he wanted to fire Ms. Finney, my English teacher. My name is Marcy Lewis. I'm 13 years old and in the ninth grade at Dwight D. Eisenhower Junior High School. All my life I thought I looked like a baby blimp with wire-framed glasses and mousy brown hair. Everyone always said I'd grow out of it but I was convinced that I'd become an adolescent blimp with wireframe glasses, mousy brown hair, and acne. My life is not easy. I know I'm not poor. Nobody beats me. I have clothes to wear, my own room, a stereo, a TV, and a push-button phone. Sometimes I feel guilty being so miserable, but middle-class kids have problems, too. Mom always made me go to tap and ballet lessons. She said they'd make me more graceful. When it came time for the recital, I accidentally sat on the record that I was supposed to dance to and broke it. It's my life, don't laugh. I had to hum along with the dap dancing. I sing as badly as I dance. It was a disaster. Father says that girl children should be born at the age of 18 and married off immediately. Stuart, my four-year-old brother, wants to be my best friend so I can help him put orange pits in a hole in his teddy bear's head. I'm flat-chested. I used to buy training bras and put tucks in them. I never had any friends except Nancy Sheridan. She's very popular, but her mother and mine are PTA officers and old friends, so I always figured that Mrs. Sheridan made her talk to me. Beauty in the blimp. School is a bummer. The only creative writing I could do was anonymous letters to the student council suggestion box. Lunches are lousy. We never get past the First World War in history class. We never learned anything good, at least not until Ms. Finney came along. So my life is not easy. The thing with Ms. Finney is what I'd like to talk about. She took over from Mr. Edwards, our first English teacher. He left after the first month. One rumor is that he had a nervous breakdown in the faculty lounge while correcting a test on noun clauses. <laughs> Another is that he had to go to a home for unwed fathers in Secaucus, New Jersey. <laughs> I personally think that he realized he was a horrible teacher. So he took a job somewhere as a principal or guidance counselor. <laughs> when Mr. Edwards left, we got a whole bunch of substitutes. None of them lasted more than two days. That'll teach the school to group all the smart kids in one class. We were indestructible. The entire class dropped books, pencils, and pens at an assigned time. Somebody put bubble gum in the pencil sharpener. Nancy pulled her fainting act. We made up names and wrote them on the attendance list. All the desks got turned around. Mr. Stone, the principal, kept coming in and yelling, and then Ms. Finney came. I'm not done. Save your clapping, or don't clap next. Um, I tried to think about what it would be like later. At 42, you start thinking about that once in a while and I wrote a column about what it would be like in a hundred years and instead I changed it to 2057 and the book takes place now, the new book, in 2057 and the character's name is Aurora Borealis Williams and she has to move and guess where she has to move? She has to move to the moon. You're right. The book is called This Place Has No Atmosphere. I think he likes you, Juna whispers, as Matthew sits down at the other side of the table and smiles at me, shh. I look down at the school lunch of mystery meat and lumpy mashed potatoes. Some things never change. Not so loud if he hears you all just die. Anyway, he smiles at everyone. He's running for ninth grade president. As the rest of the group sits down at the table, the robot lunch monitor goes past our table, checking for litterers. It blinks its light at Juna who is blowing a straw wrapper at me from across the table. Detention, it makes a clicking sound at her. This is the third time this week that you have been guilty of an infraction. Student 114, 1844, Juna Jameson, you will have to stay after school for three days. Juna stares at the robot. I guess that was the last straw for you. The gang laughs, the robot doesn't. It hasn't been programmed to have a sense of humor. The blinking lights change from red to black and then back again. Rudeness, you have four days detention. Juna smiles at the robot. Thank you. Want to flip a coin and make it double or nothing? Gambling is not permitted on school premises. The robot beeps and leaves as it spots a table of boys who are trying to make a pyramid out of jello. I look at Juna, what did you do that for? she grins randy brock got a month's detention for using his telekinetic powers to put the vice principal on the flagpole i've been wanting to spend some time with him for a long while maybe now that we're in detention together he'll notice me even though he's a senior and i'm only a freshman then it goes on to explain um that juna has made her hair very long and pink and purple actually it doesn't look that different than a lot of people outside this room but um but she does and her parents are very upset uh, and she says junis says you should have seen my mother's face when i walked in the door maybe she'll be so angry that i won't have to be in the macy's thanksgiving day parade the light bulbs in Junas' hair flash on and on as she off and on as she talks junis is a celebrity because she was the first child conceived in outer space her parents were honeymooning astronauts on a space shuttle expedition this was written before obviously When they came back to Earth, Mrs. Jameson was pregnant. Ever since then, Juna's had lots of publicity. Lately, she's kind of embarrassed when she realizes that her parents, that people know what her parents were doing when the cameras were off. Now there are lots of kids, not only started in space, but born there. But Juna was the first, so she's in the news, kind of like back in the old days when the first test tube baby was born. Um, Couldn't you have just told your parents that you did not want to ride on the float this year? I look at her even though the blinking lights are beginning to drive me nuts. They never listen, she sighs. My mother's really getting to me. What does she know about being a teenager? She hasn't been one for years. It's 2057. She was born decades ago. Juno rants about her parents for a few more minutes, and then the rest of the gang starts complaining about their parents. Um, and then it goes on, I'm not going to have time for the whole thing. Um, the bell rings, she realizes that she has a crush on this young man. Juna blows a straw wrapper at me to get my attention. She gets three more days detention. I look at her. It's time to get ready for class, she reminds me. We empty our garbage into the disposal hole in the center of the table. I watch as it disappears through a a tube that leads to the basement where the automatic trash compactor mushes it into tiny blocks which are later transformed into a power source. This process is a fairly new development Everyone seems to be amazed that garbage is being used to run the school, but I don't see what's so unusual about that. <laughs> the same can be said about Mr. Finsterwald, the principal. Putting the dirty dishes in the tray on the conveyor belt, I rush to my favorite class, drama class. You can tell I grew up in New Jersey. Class. Drama of the 21st century. June is taking Building Your Own Synthesizer. I have even found out what Matthew's schedule is. He's got BESB beginning extrasensory perception. If he's doing well in it, he should know how much I want to go out with him. I rush into class, sit in my seat, careful to put my thumbprint on the attendance-taking square on the desk so that I'm not marked later absent. I think about Matthew and how my life would be complete if he asked me out and fell in love with me. There's about as much chance of that happening, though, as there is of my living on the moon.
0: I'm beginning to reach another conclusion. I I think maybe I've discussed this with someone else in the room, but I I think maybe the impulse to write children's books grows from a dramatic impulse, don't you? I've never heard such lively readings, and we've had many readings in this room in the past. Our our next reader is is a former editor from Bob's Merrill who has written uh, 26 books for young readers. I happened to call him on Friday when he had a, a book hot off the press that was published that very day called Crystal. Our next reader is Walter Dean Myers.
9: Mr. Myers. Let me put it into the good reading. Is that comfortable for you? Yeah, I, I think so. Okay. Uh, this is from a book called uh, Motown and Didi, a love story. Motown hadn't always lived in a in abandoned buildings, and he hadn't always lived on 135th Street, but he had been living in old buildings for four years and on 135th Street for almost a full year now. Not that 135th and Lennox was so great. Two years earlier, a fire had gutted several buildings on the block, and the city has sent a construction job, a construction firm up to Harlem to finish the job. They said it was for the safety of the other residents so that the buildings wouldn't collapse and injure anyone. They left an empty lot where people would come and dump their garbage. And the rental winos built fires there and trash cans to keep away the cold. The building Motown was living in had emptied out soon after the fire. The building next to him was also vacant. At first his windows had been covered just with galvanized tin Then the city had put pictures of windows over the tin to make it look as if people were still living in the buildings. The junkies had come in and taken out all the plumbing. Lead pipe went for $0.04 a pound if they were clean, $0.02 a pound if they were painted. The first floor, because it was closest to the garbage in the empty lot, was where the rats lived. Motown lived on the third floor. When he woke the first Monday after losing his job at Empire State Carriers, it was raining. That was a good sign. A lot of people might stay home and miss some job that he, going out in the rain, could then get. He lay on a small cot by the window in apartment number 4 overlooking Lenox Avenue itself and mapped out his plan of action. He would look two days for a good job the other three days, he would take anything, no matter how temporary, to make ends meet. He didn't mind what kind of work he had to do, as long as it was honest. Motown had his stash, over $100 in the bank downtown. He kept his bank book in a belt that he wore under his clothes. He made the belt by cutting and sewing up an old army jacket he'd found. He had put buttons on it so he could fasten it around his waist. He went to the street. Hey, Motown, where are you going so early? Tutmose Rogers wiped at the sweat which ran down the side of his head. Downtown, see if I can find me a job, Motown said. That piece of job I had down in the garment center didn't last like the guy said it would. Yeah, I know what you mean, Tutmos said. You want a paper? Motown took one of the papers that Tutmos was selling, reached, in, reached into his pocket for the change to pay for it, then saw Tutmose's hand go up. You ain't gonna make no money giving away your papers, Tutmose he said. Go on, Motown, Tutmos said, grinning. You know me and you tight. Motown started toward the subway. It made him feel good to walk with all the other people, getting out in the morning, What made a difference between people was what you did in the morning. If you got up and went out to work, you were one kind of person. If you didn't have anywhere to go, you were a different kind. Motown was 17, almost 18, and most of the people he knew around his age didn't have anything more to do than hang out in the streets. There wasn't anything wrong with the streets, just that Motown sometimes thought they were—they weren't the real world. Sometimes, too, he thought that some of the people he saw in the streets weren't the real people. You see, them young men walking down the streets. The old man, they called the professor, used to say, "They aren't just young bloods. They're warriors walking along the edges of their tribal lands, exalting their manhood." It sounded good. Most so he could walk the rest of the way to where he was going. He, he liked this time of day in Harlem. People would pour off the train and spread quickly through the streets in 100 directions to their homes or to jobs. When he was in the mood, Motown could sense the life that steamed from the concrete walks. And when he did, he would smell the odors of life, new and old, that pushed out from the red brick tenements and hung like ivy from the fire escapes. Like some people could feel a change in the weather, Motown could feel changes in the streets. Sometimes, on those mornings following the sleepless, sleepless nights that came all too often, he wished that it weren't so. But wishing he didn't make things change. Maybe later, when he had his own place, things would change. Sometimes he thought about how he would sit at his own window and look down at the street, his own window, squaring off a patch of space that was his. It would be good. Motown has a girlfriend, and her name is Didi, and her biggest wish is to leave Harlem, and they argue about it. That's how you, you see yourself. Leaving Harlem, Motown said. I see myself here. You can't go away because of your mother and Tony. And you figure that's killing your real life. People taking dope. They letting the dope kill their real lives because they ain't strong enough to, to deal with it. What kind of real life you have around here, Motown? Didi asked. I mean, I'm not trying to put you down or, or anything. But you ain't living a big time life, baby. I didn't say big time, Motown said. I just said real. What I do, I'd be doing it for real. I didn't even say it was good all the, all the time. I can't buy that, Dee said. What you have in life might be real, and what you're doing might be real. But it isn't what you want something else. What do you want from life? Nice people to, people to be around mostly, Motown said. Around here? Maybe, Motown said, his dark face broadening into a smile. If I tell them to make some good hamburgers, they'll stay around. Next time I get depressed, I'll take my hamburger someplace else, Dee Dee said, smiling. You have a boyfriend? Motown asked. Not particularly. You have a girlfriend? I don't think I've ever had a girlfriend, Motown answered. Which means what? Don't mean nothing. Then what you smiling at me for? What you smiling at me for? I'm not smiling at you, I'm just smiling because of what you said about the hamburgers. I'm just smiling because I'm happy you're here, Motown said. That's a nice thing to say, Didi said. It really is. Motown stood and walked over to where Didi was just starting to put one of the hamburgers on a bun. He lifted her hand and kissed it. She looked at him, surprised, smiling. She leaned forward slightly lifting her face toward him and closed her eyes when he kissed her again.
0: Uh, this program really has great diversity, doesn't it? And the the, the, the person who's gonna close who give us the final reading this afternoon is particularly gracious because when you see a line above 10 and you go 10th, you really have to have Great sense of generosity. In, in the, the quaint days of our childhood, they used to talk about the, a man of letters, and then I guess we'd say a woman of letters, and today perhaps you'd call, call it a person of letters. And I think that would be an appropriate identification for Norma Klein. She's written short stories that have been published in, in what, what used to be called quality magazines or little magazines. She's written novels, and she's written books for y- young readers, and she is a, one of the great advocates of. Of writing for young children in the councils of Penn for which we are grateful and have particular respect.
10: Going Backward is a novel about a 16-year-old boy, Charles, who lives with his parents and seven-year-old brother, Kalo. Recently, his 84-year-old grandmother, who has Alzheimer's disease, has come to live with them while the family tries to decide whether to put her in a home. This scene takes place in Central Park, where Charles, his father, his grandmother, and his brother have gone for picnics. They run into one of Charles' classmates, a girl named Wendy, whom he has a crush on. Charles and Wendy attend an art high school where Charles's major is singing. My father, Kalo, my grandmother, and I all went out to the park. On the way, my father stopped at the local deli, Martin's, for some supplies. Pickles, Kalo yelled. Get lots of pickles. My father always gets lots of pickles because he loves them himself. In fact, he loves everything he's not supposed to eat, like smoked salmon, cream cheese, heavy cream in his coffee. He says he's a sybarite. It's funny the way my grandmother's moods change. One minute you look at her and she seems like a regular little old lady making charming, slightly disconnected remarks. And then she'll say something really rude and out of place, like calling Josie a whore. I know she can't help it. It's just Alzheimer's, a disease where certain brain cells disintegrate. But there are times when I can understand mom getting so annoyed with her. Kalo has moods too and says rude things, but he's never really cruel. Dad led us up to 80th and 5th behind the Metropolitan Museum and found a nice place under a tree. It was cool and mildly sunny, a nice day for a picnic. Then he took out all the food, sandwiches, beer, pound cake, chocolate bars. But Samuel, we just ate, my grandmother exclaimed. Just a little snack, my father said. No one has to eat if they're not hungry. Kalo, of course, can eat nonstop all day and never gain a pound. I was never like that, even when I was growing six inches a year. I just figured I was allowed to eat that much more, and did. But I tried to stick to just a bagel with some butter and a beer. Kayla ate a few pickles and then began running around picking dandelions for my grandmother. As we were sitting there, I looked up and my heart sank. There was Wendy Wolf from my presentation class with what looked like her parents. She was dressed in a real dress, her father was in a suit, and her mother was slim and dark haired with a big floppy hat. I promised God anything she wanted. Josie's convinced me God is a black woman if she would let Wendy not see me. I looked off to one side so I couldn't catch her eye, but then couldn't resist darting a glance back to see if they were out of sight. Just then, Wendy saw me. Oh, hi, Charles, she said in a friendly way. She and her parents came over to where we were sitting on the grass. These are my parents. Charles is in my class at Diamond. Well, I'm glad to see it really is a co-ed school, her father said, sometimes I wonder. It's always a relief when other people's parents make dumb, embarrassing remarks. (laughs) Feeling much better, I said, this is my father and my grandmother and my brother, Kalo. Kalo ran over and said, we're celebrating Mother's Day. He handed Wendy a bunch of dandelions. I'm not a mother, she said, blushing. Kalo looked at Wendy's mother. Are you a mother? Yes, I am, she said. You take them then. Then my father made the remark I was hoping against hope he wouldn't make. Would you find people like to join us in a little snack? I'm afraid we brought more for our picnic than we should have. Say no, please. Why, we were just about to look for a place to have some lunch, Mrs. Wolfe said. That would be lovely if you're sure you have enough. My father stood and with a gracious gesture said, we'd be honored. Why am I such a slob? It's true I didn't expect to run into anyone from our school, especially a girl but I was wearing old, filthy jeans and a wrinkled shirt. I looked like a bum. Some guys can dress like that and look macho, as though they just didn't care much about clothes because they look so great without them, but not me. Why couldn't we have left my grandmother at home? She's going to do something mortifying and Wendy'll hate me forever. Mr. Wolfe sat down next to my father. I'm a stockbroker, he said, James Wolfe. My father shook his hand with that mocking gallantry he has. Sam Goldberg, pathologist. My mother has trained him to always ask people's wives what they do, but Mrs. Wolf said before he could even ask, I'm Cindy Wolf and I don't work. Sometimes I feel like a dinosaur. That got Kalo's attention. What kind? he asked. Kalo is our in-house dinosaur expert, Dad said. Mrs. Wolfe smiled. She was really pretty. I just meant I feel I belong to a species that's becoming extinct. You beautify the earth, my father said. What more valuable function can any being perform? Maybe if you're fat like my father, you learn to develop a line with women. I should work on that. What's your line, Charles? Mr. Wolfe asked. You're not a dancer, I hope. Need he have asked? I play the piano and I sing. Charles has a great voice, Wendy said. He sang an assembly last month. Let's hear a few bars, Mr. Wolfe said. I tried quickly to think if there was any situation in the world that could be more embarrassing than this and decided there wasn't. At least it would be a distraction for my grandmother doing something crazy. I allowed a minute or two for the earth to open up under me. Then I just sang "Honora Amorosa." Omar- when I was done, they all clapped. My grandmother hugged me. He's such a fine boy, she said, like his father. Only I can't sing, my father said. Is that how you're going to earn a living, Mr. Wolf asked me keenly, opening a container of Greek olives? He's considering medicine, my father answered for me. That's the stuff, Mr. Wolf said, wolfing down a bunch of olives. (laughs) Earn a decent living, sing on the side, that's what I tell Wendy. Dance in the living room, learn how to type, get an MBA. Wendy really looked annoyed. Daddy, I'm not going to dance in the living room. I may not rise to the top of my profession, but I'm certainly not going to get an MBA or something ridiculous like that. Suddenly she smiled shyly, and I'm not gonna get up and dance right here. I'm not as confident as Charles. We can see you'd be a wonderful dancer, my father said, even without seeing you. I'm a wonderful dancer, Kalo said, and without any coaxing, he began doing some kind of very peculiar dance on the lawn. A very talented family, Mrs. Wolfe said. My husband tends to forget that the arts are a profession, just as medicine or, what was it you did? She asked my father. I'm a pathologist, Dad said. I'm not absolutely sure what that is, Mrs. Wolfe said, smiling. Many days, I'm not either, my father said. He glanced nervously over at my grandmother. How are you doing, Granny? What he meant was, did she need to go to the bathroom? Sometimes she forgets and then pees on the floor. Please don't let her do that now, triple please. How should I be, my grandmother said. I'm fine. Why don't we make a little trip into the museum, my father said, you come too, Kalo. I don't need to go, Kayla said, pouting. You just come for the ride, my father said. He helped my grandmother to her feet. As she stood up, a trickle of urine ran down both legs. I guess we're a little late. Well, let's go anyway. My grandmother looked down at the pool beneath her and said with a shrug to the wolves, I'm not what I once was. I'd been hoping after my father, Kalo, and my grandmother disappeared, the wolves would say they needed to go too. I felt so awful about the whole incident, so ashamed I just wanted to disappear. Who invented families? Why do they wreck things just when you need them most? Mrs. Wolf just sipped her coffee and said, is she in a home? No, she lives with us, I explained. We tried that with my mother, but it wrought havoc on the family, she said. But our grandmother was crazy, Wendy said. She had Alzheimer's. Yours doesn't seem to be like that. She is a lot of the time, I said. God, Wendy looked pretty. Her collarbones jut out and her breasts are small, but she has beautiful big dark eyes with long eyelashes. She ought to wear her hair loose all the time instead of tied back that way. Finally, Wendy's father staggered to his feet. I think we better be heading along, he said. This has been a very pleasant interlude, Charles. Tell your father we enjoyed meeting him. Your little brother is darling, Wendy said. How about me, aren't I darling? After the wolves had departed, I sat on the grass, gazing dreamily off into the distance. Now that the occasion was over, I reviewed it and touched it up a little. Look on the bright side, right? Gaze at the donut, not at the hole. Okay, the donut. First, I do have a good singing voice, much deeper and more self-assured and masculine than my speaking voice. I was asked to sing and I sang. They thought I was good, maybe not great, as Wendy over generously suggested, but I didn't flub the occasion. My voice didn't crack. And Mr. Wolf even saw me as someone who could if he wanted become a doctor. Let's see, what else? Well, Wendy was definitely friendly. She too once had a crazy grandmother, so maybe mine didn't seem so weird. My father can strike people as charming and they only stayed around for about 20 minutes. Plus he must have seemed generous offering food and drink to total strangers. And Kalo, although he can be a show off and a pest, is also what most people consider cute for his age. I let all this roll over me until I saw the three of them trooping back, my father looking harassed and sweaty. They wouldn't let me in the ladies' room. She peed all over the lobby. It was all over, but I still felt rotten. My father takes my grandmother places as though she was the way she used to be 10 years ago. Then we had lots of terrific picnics in the park. Can't he see how different everything is now? Did she do it on a Rembrandt, I said. Get everything together, my father said, ignoring this. I'm taking her home. Kalo, you wanna stay with Charles and help him or go home with grandma and me? Stay with Charles, Kalo said promptly. Kalo helped me put the rest of the food in the shopping bag. Where's the girl and the lady and the man, he asked. They had to go. My good mood was oozing irretrievably away. Is she your girlfriend, Kalo asked? Which one? He roared with laughter, the pretty one. They were both pretty. Why do I enjoy needling Kalo so much? The young one, he yelled, with exasperation at my seeming denseness. Not really, I admitted, swallowing the rest of the beer. How come? I made a mock demure expression. I'm shy. Kalo laughed again. You are not. I'm not sure she likes me, I admitted and I couldn't think of any good reason why she should. She likes me, Kalo said. Maybe she'll be my girlfriend. It's true she'd said he was darling. Will you invite me to the wedding, I said. I can be your best man. What's best man, said Kalo, grabbing a few Oreos before I got the package away from him. It's the best man you know, which I am. He gave me a disdainful look. You're not a man, you're a boy. Daddy's a man. I am so a man, I said, in an unnaturally deep voice. That started Kalo rolling on the grass, laughing again. That was so funny when you sang, he said. You looked so funny. How do you think you look, dancing? We finally got all the stuff together and walked home slowly. Kalo insisted on carrying one of the shopping bags, though he tilted dangerously to one side as though he were drunk. Sometimes I envy Kalo being young enough not to have to care about girls or whether they like him about anything that matters He's lucky and he doesn't even know it
0: We're lucky and we do know it, right? I, I, I was trying to think of the last image to close this afternoon. I Uh, Everybody has their favorite children's book. Mine was Ferdinand. I was just thinking that we were all like Ferdinand, smelling the flowers, only the flowers were people reading to us this afternoon. Thank you all very much for joining us at Penn, and particularly I want to thank the readers who all enchanted us. Thank you.